Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension. And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. We've been doing this podcast over the last few years, and we're changing the format a little bit for this season. We're going to do some pre-recorded interviews. It might not be us doing them, but we'll have some other folks featured sometimes. And this is one of those episodes. Rue Ginger at the University of Wisconsin was interested in interviewing vegetable farmers who do no-till and low-till production. So this is one of those interviews, the second that Rue has sent us so far. How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, and our license for transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension. And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Take it away, Rue. Hi, Liz, and uh, welcome to this podcast interview. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So I was wondering if we could start off uh, with you doing a brief intro about your farm, Dancing the Land. Sure. So... Dancing the Land Farm is run by myself and my sweetheart, Curtis, and we have a little four-year-old rapscallion of a kid who runs around here as well. Um, And we, this is the land that I grew up on, but we started Dancing the Land, well, gosh, we moved back from California in 2012, started our first year as a farm business in 2014. And we grow everything, all the foods, all the flowers, lamb, goat, um, chickens, eggs, quail. We have a couple peacocks and a couple ducks running around here. So um, yeah, fiber animals as well as dairy animals, um, all kinds of things because diversity is the key to life. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I, I saw on your website some of the fiber products that you have that look just really beautiful. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how big is your farm? We have 56 acres total. Um, We farm, like actively grow vegetables and flowers on about four acres. And then we have about 14 to 16 acres of pasture. And then the rest of it is either um, marshlands or woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do the animal and, um, and produce operations stay separate in terms of, um, of the acres that you're using, or do you do some rotation there? Actually, so our animals have been key in bringing fertility to our annual productions. Um, when we first moved back here, we took over my family's field, which my family, were, they were, no one was farmers. I mean, my mom always had a garden, but my they were not farmers anyway. So they rent, my parents rented out our tillable acreage to a local farmer who grew corn every single year without rotation for longer than I've been alive. Uh Um, so as you can imagine, the soil quality was poor to say the least. I mean, devastating is a better word. You couldn't find an earthworm. I mean, you couldn't find anything. So we, have for years made a practice of wintering our animals on our annual beds, like on on our annual fields so that they Mm -hmm. can pee and waste hay. Um, And that, yeah, they've been crucial. So we do mix them up. And then we also like, you know, we have bedding from 
certain like bedding from the chicken coop or bedding from the dairy goat barn that we also will incorporate into compost and then use those as mulch in our no-till beds and things like that too so the animals and the it's all mixed up together you know animals are a requisite for fertility unless you want to be really dependent on inputs in my opinion Mm -hmm. yeah so for the four acres or so vegetables and other annual crops um, what numbers of livestock are you running? I'm interested in like how many livestock are, are yeah. required to produce enough fertility. Well, I mean, they always have babies. So getting <laughs> numbers is so hard, but I think we have probably 60 or so head of Angora goats combined with Icelandic sheep together. We call them our Shangoras, our sheep and Angora <laughs> herd, because that's our fiber herd. And they just require less maintenance than the dairy goats, which we tend to run separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we haven't always had that many. We tend, mm-hmm. We've been in a, an increasing pattern with our herds for a couple of years. So we started out with you know, gosh, just a couple, a handful. And then every year we've added more. So in those first couple of years, we did end up using things like, um, trucked in compost and well, mostly just trucked in compost, um, to Mm -hmm. help beef up the fertility before our animals could do a good chunk of it. Yeah. Um, Uh so yeah, now we have like, it's about 60 head of angoras and sheep, um, plus a bunch of babies and, you know, cause every year we harvest babies for meat and skins and then, you know, or the old ones retire, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. That's evolving a, number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a, that's a great ballpark estimate. Yeah. That's helpful. So um, would you describe your vegetable production as like no-till or low-till? How would you, how would you describe that? Um. We do, we have several different models that we employ all at once. Um, we have some no-till beds, which are beds that we just literally never till. Um, and then we have some low-till beds, low-till areas, I guess, because they're not beds, um, that we till once and then we uh, till once in the spring and then cover with fabric and then don't till again until the following spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, landscape fabric is where I would say low till because things are getting tilled, but then, you know, we have no till trellis rows where we just rotate the crops on the trellises and they're all permanent installations and we just mm-hmm. never till them. Um, and then we have, yeah. Uh, like, I don't know how, how big is that? Like, and half, like three quarters of an acre of no till, like straight up, no till permanent installation beds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about tillage, um, I mean, there's there's sometimes discussion and debate um, in farming circles about what actually constitutes tillage, mm-hmm. um, like is using a broadfork tillage, is using a tineweeder tillage. So can you talk a little bit about your rationale and, um, you know, why you consider this important and what kinds of soil disturbance you consider tillage and are trying to limit? Right. So, I mean, I know, I don't know. I'm not a purist in anything. <laughs> I just, there's no, there's no room for fascism in life. really. Um, so I think that, you know, things like broad forks, they are meant to aerate the soil without disturbing soil strata, which great, you know, that's definitely healthier for the soil than a rototiller. 
also there are places for rototillers in 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 farms you know even mm-hmm. low and no-till farms tine weeding forks like i think those are interesting because you end up using the top layer of soil as a mulch in itself because when mm-hmm. you disturb it 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 no longer has the soil structure the yeah it just ends up you know you, it's not great for that top surface of the soil but then that top surface ends up being your mulch so it's mm. you know it's an interesting way of thinking about things because it saves the bigger disturbances and you're getting thread stage weeds. I always find them to be kind of putsy and never great, but you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. People use them. I, I don't know. I think that the the reason that I care about no-till is that, I mean, soil is just one of the, if not the most important and magical thing that there could possibly be in the whole world. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, every every single thing that has ever died has become the ground that feeds us. I mean, mm. it's just, it's utter magic, you know, and that's plant beings and bugs and microbiotics and people. And I mean, every, all the animals, everything goes into making the soil and becoming the organic matter that is the life of that soil that feeds all the microbiota and the flora and fauna that make the soil the magical thing that, that it is. And so every time you till up the soil. And I think of a rototiller in this case, where you're really stirring up and messing with everything you, you know, soil breathes. And when you, when you stir up the soil like that, you're introducing a ton of oxygen into the environment. And so all the natural processes kind of go on hyperdrive. They're just like, okay, we're, we're combusting and we're eating this and we're doing that. All right. We're doing all the things. And it just burns up the organic matter so fast. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and it just makes it so that the soil can no longer support life. You know, like when we first moved back to this farm, our soil was basically an inert, dusty media that was meant to hold corn roots and anhydrous ammonia, you know, Mm. like there's nothing to it anymore. There was no life in it. It had all been burned up and given to the sky in greenhouse gases. Yeah. Um, And so limiting tillage is in my opinion, it's, um, I don't know, it's like, you know, making the, stopping our endless hands out to what is holy in the ground saying we want more and more and more. And it's keeping some in the ground so that we can have a future. I know it's a little esoteric, but I think soil is magic. I love that. I, I think about how little we understand of the processes that are going on in the soil. And um, it's such an incredibly complex um, world. There's so much like soil science stuff and people talking about cations and calcium levels and all the different NPKs. And to me, it's really about life and life wants to live. Life wants to do what she does, you know? And so Mm. if we stop this antagonistic relationship to the ground to just clear i mean it's literally a clear-cut tillage is just like you know going nuclear (laughs) on the soil it's just like all right we'll destroy everything and then start over and that's you know it's a clean slate and the like the part of me that is a virgo loves it (laughs) (laughs) so satisfying to just like see empty ground and put plants in and watch them grow and pretend the weeds are never going to come but of course they will but Mm. you know 
I've I've heard some people say that um, there's a cultural shift needed in how we think about yes. what makes you a a good farmer in totally. terms of like how do you treat that that ground and I think the I think pe- even people who don't farm um, experience that sort of visceral satisfaction of seeing a field that is tilled up mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge conversation, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I think, you know, this may not be a popular opinion, but I think in a lot of ways, farming is warfare against the natural world, or at least it has become so. And I don't think it has to be, but I think, you know, destroying an entire ecosystem just so you don't have a weed in your endless rows of corn and soy, like that's an act of violence, you know, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of indigenous minds think that even just the act of piercing the soil with a planting stick to plant your corns, you know, in the ground one by one is, um, that's thought of an, as an act of violence. You're, you're piercing the world, you're piercing the womb of the earth, which is the soil to like mm. have, have the seed grow. And like, there is an inherent violence, which, you know, I say that word and everybody wants to wash their hands of it, but I think they're, Eat, that eating in general is an in, is a violent thing. I mean, we take life to feed our own lives, and that's for plants and animals, you know. And I think that there is this this level of nuance and, and depth to what it is to be a person who eats and drinks water, and certainly to be a farmer, which is to be you know at the doorway constantly between life and death constantly taking life, constantly planting seeds, constantly killing weeds, constantly, you know, making choices about who will live and who will die. And I think there's so, so much of a cultural shift that needs to happen in order to see the world as a living being that we are not just entitled to. (laughs) I have so many strong feelings about, like among people, yes, we are all absolutely entitled to healthy, good food. And we need to do so much more for equality in this world as far as access to good food. And when when I think about the natural world, none of us are entitled to life. We have we are here because of the generosity and the grace of the world. And so if we can stop thinking about this, this world as a resource to plunder and start thinking of it as this thinking, thinking of this whole, this whole place as somebody, some community that we are a member of, but we are not the pinnacle of by any means, nor are we the most necessary, (laughs) you know, and start approaching farming from this idea that, you know, the world was just fine before we got here and she's going to be okay if we don't make it, but also we could be here and we could do something good and thinking about what that might be versus thinking about the world as a resource to just extract, you know? So coming back to what you said earlier about not being a purist, Mm -hmm. that to me those things fit together in that there are choices that as a farmer you'll make sometimes which you know have a negative impact on the soil ecosystem or on a part of it Mm -hmm. and you might make those choices but you're balancing those choices and trying to see yourself as part of this system is does that yeah so I mean I just think that there, there just needs to be so much grace, you know, like we have some no-till beds that, um, 
we didn't get the mulch on them that we needed, which is a thing that we'll talk about later, I think. Um, and so, you know, the weeds grew up and it's, they just got away from us. And so we're making the choice to till those beds and to start again, um, mm. as it is the most effective uh, choice as far as our labor and time goes. Mm-hmm. And I hated the choice and I like resisted for so long that the weeds got enormous. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I know. And then I was just like, actually like, this is okay. You know, like I'm not perfect. I'm always learning. I am so sick of all of the like judgment, social media. This is the right way to farm nonsense that is out there. Like, unless we are pulling from a, from a, you know, generations old practice of relationship and real um, rootedness to the ground, we are all learning. Mm, <laughs> like yeah. that's just, And that's just how it is. And now with the climate crisis looming, we are all learning again, all of us, even people who have those ancestral teachings to pull yeah. from, you know? And so there has to be so much grace. There has to be like, this is our ideal and this is what we want to go towards. And this is also how this season is showing up. And one thing that I am trying to do as a farmer this year is to allow my humanity, my aliveness to be one of the things that comes to the table that gets to say, and this season will look like this because in the past, like, you know, because we have a relationship with the ground, because we have an accord with the soil and we have, you know, ethics and, ideals and the things we want to abide by we just end up turning that shovel of extraction on our own selves instead of on the ground Mm. and that is not a sustainable system either you know and so allowing us to be like hey we have a young kid like we're not going to work until night at night anymore like hey like i'm sick of being exhausted all the time like let's just like have a reasonable relationship with our work life and then see what shows up and see what what we are actually meant to look like versus Mm. constantly thinking that we can do more and hit these like super far-fetched ideals. Like, I mean, it's great to have dreams. Yes. And like to really allow ourselves to say, Oh, you know, like we've had a lot of loss on our, on our farm in the last seven years, like our son died and we buried him there. My mom Mm. died, my sibling died. Like we've had a lot of loss and we've just like, I can look back and see like, Oh, that garden that year looked like, the garden the the garden of a farmer whose kid died you know know? like and that's okay versus seeing it as a failure seeing seeing ourselves and our identity show up at the table to be like oh this is what I can give this is my collaborative effort with the natural world this year Hmm. I appreciate that way of of framing it it's yeah it seems both humble and realistic to me we gotta do something different, man. Otherwise yeah. <laughs> we're just gonna burn ourselves out, you know? Yeah. So when you started growing, I mean, from the way you describe the soil when you when you started on that piece of land, it's pretty clear what led you to try no-till. Did you have experience with those practices from from previous farming? Um, I mean a little bit. I I was living in farming in Cal. Curtis and I both were living in farming in California for about seven years before we decided to move back to Minnesota. Um, and people were trying all kinds of different things out there. So we, I worked on a bunch of different farms, saw a ton of different models. Um, and I had heard the idea of no-till, had heard the idea of permaculture, which I think goes hand in hand with no-till pretty easily. Hmm. Um, and just like 
you know, soil health and all of that. It, but the ways, the ways that we've been approaching it have been, has just been a lot of trial and error, <laughs> like so much. And it's just sort of funny how we arrived at no-till without the buzzword coming first, you know, it was mm-hmm. more like a good Lord, we need to not have to be so much kind of decision. And then like, what can we do? And like how, you know, cause I had learned the like French intensive method where you like plant plants close enough together so that they're a mature adult forms, like shade out the weeds below them, which is great, but you do have to weed until that end point, you know? And like, that's yeah. really like the main way that I learned. And then just being like, Oh gosh, maybe if we just like put mulches down and we like played with, you know, the, bi- the plastic, biofilms that people use we went for the biodegradable one because i couldn't stomach that much plastic and like mm. then here comes the drip tape nightmare and like <laughs> I just, yeah. it was just like you know all of these different like okay that's how that happens and then just really you know trying to find that sweet spot between a tremendous amount of labor up front in the like crunch of the season when you just need to get things in the ground and like mm-hmm. having to lay all the drip tape, having to get the plastic in. Okay. So then we've got a machine to lay the plastic and that was okay, but it had to be pulled by people. And I had a bunch mm. of really whiny interns that year who didn't want to do it all. <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, and so then we got a tractor machine and that was great. And then we found this like porous fabric that you could like punch a transplanter through mm-hmm. without having to burn a hole and it was like porous. So you didn't need the drip tape because it got rain or aerial mm. stickers or something. And so that was a little easier to lay or you could put the drip tape on top, but then it was plastic and we thought we could do it for multiple seasons, but no, it just didn't hold up. And so then we just sort of wound up like trying paper and that was awesome plant right through paper like craft paper mm-hmm. rolls from you yeah you know yeah. <laughs> like that was cool and then I was like well that just blows away in the wind once it gets wet and brittle and so then you know paper got covered then with mulch like organic matter mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. we suddenly you know reinvented the wheel of no-till you know yeah <laughs> that's so, a lot of that's a lot of different systems that you just whizzed through describing yeah. it that's a lot of stuff to try <laughs> We are all about experimentation. (laughs) So would you say that you have a favorite system right now, whether like generally or for a particular crop that you'd be able to describe? Yeah, I have two. Mm -hmm. Um, Walk us through them. I, for like, for soil health, for long-term like relationship to, to a bed and to like, you know, I, cause I, I have a photographic memory, so I know what I've planted every single year after mm-hmm. year. I know what's evolved in those places in the garden. And I just love that. And so I are my, my favorite and like absolute no-till method right now is it takes a little while to install, but we put down landscape fabric on our pathways. So we have three foot landscape fabric between our beds. And then we, you have to, we start from a tillage place. So we till landscape fabric and then we put down like four to six inches of mulch Um, Mm -hmm. and then we plant through them and those beds that we've made have I mean we did that in a really we did that because it flooded one year and our Mm -hmm. ground you know tillage in high wet situations tillage sort of turns into like 
It's like a little ramekin of pudding because mm. the hard pan underneath the tillage just holds water. And then the soft, fluffy stuff on top is just pudding, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was just, it made this whole area completely impossible to grow in. And so we were like, okay, let's just like do a cover crop of daikon radish to break up the hard pan, which we did. And then we laid down this you know, landscape fabric and mulch on top of it. And then just every year we add a compost layer and then a mulch layer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beds are amazing, just phenomenal. And there are some drawbacks. I don't know if you want the drawbacks on that one. Oh yeah. Always okay. want the drawbacks. <laughs> so yeah. the drawbacks are you need mulch, mm. which is, I think I didn't realize how how much of a barrier that would be you need like we when the year that we put in these beds we had landed on the like no-till farmers motherload dream of you know old in this area we're known for our bachelor farmers you know like uh-huh. the old yeah. guys who just like sat on equipment their whole lives anyway we ran like we had some bachelor farmers called us up and they had a dairy barn full of 15 year old chopped hay right wow so the seeds are mostly dead at this point and it's dry as can be and Mm -hmm. and they have a ton of it and they just want it gone and so you know i think they charged us like 20 bucks for a truck and trailer load full and we just went all summer long and made tons and tons of beds and it was amazing but then the next year we didn't have that anymore yeah and so then we're like well what do we do? And so we started using different, you know, straws, different haze, and just like the weed seed loading was just a little too intense. And now, you know, then the beds get away from you and you have to figure out what to do. Yeah. yeah. But I just got a, a contract with a local mushroom grower. Oh. Which it feels like another like no-till dream come true. <laughs> Cause like, <laughs> you know, they're, it's like an organic mushroom production. And they have this sterile like straw and rice hull based mix that they mm-hmm. grow their mushrooms in and they can't reuse it. And so they need, so you like basically pay people to dump it. <laughs> and I was yeah, like, yeah, you, you may pay me to do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not paying me to do it, but we've worked out, worked out an arrangement, you know? So we, now we have this like semi truckload of kind of funky smelling <laughs> sterile mulch medium sitting in our field, which I'm super excited about, but that is yeah. a drawback. If you don't have access to a mulch material and I know some people like grow their mulches and then terminate the crop and then plant into it I haven't figured out a way to make that work in our short seasons Mm -hmm. Um, so needing some sort of like other mulch has been really key and this seems like a great you know loop to close from a waste product for a local company so that's exciting yeah Um, I love that I love that you're able to get something locally totally yeah wonderful Um, And then my other favorite low-till method is landscape fabric. I know it's, I mean, there are drawbacks too, but when you're like in that crunch point of the season and you just don't have time to like hand lay a bunch of mulch (laughs) on a bed, you know, like stretching out a 16 foot sheet of landscape fabric that we've already, you know, cause you can reuse those sheets for 10 mm. years. Yeah. Um, so they're really, they're not as wasteful as the yearly biofilms or anything like that. Um, and we just have sheets that are set up that are like nine inch spacing triangulated or, 
18 inch spacing or whatever we need. And we just lay them out and staple them down, throw a bunch of sandbags on and Mm -hmm. plant. And just, it's just done. It's so fast. And then it really does conserve moisture having the landscape fabric on. And it really does keep the weeds down. Like you end up just having to weed like the little collar around each plant Mm. and only for like the first couple of weeks. And then it's just just done. The drawbacks there of course is high winds. Yeah. (laughs) I've experienced that. We've chased so much fabric this year. I can't even tell you. Um, And then ground squirrels is a new one for us this year. They love running around underneath the fabric and eating all of our corn seeds. Oh, no. Yeah. I've I've heard about people having problems with voles as well. Yeah. Yeah. Kinds of situations. So, yeah. um, Definitely something to keep an eye on. Maybe get a dog. Well, but uh, we have dogs and they, oh. <laughs> they're like ripping the fabric, trying to get the ground squirrels out. And I'm like, oh, no. No! oh God. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's just it. That's, that's like, there's no silver bullet in life yeah. or in farming. And that's just okay. You know, like we hone and we improve and we learn every year and there's just never going to be an end all be all solution to, to everything. Like there is always going to be like the no-till beds that we put in for flooding, they were mm-hmm. the best in the drought that we went through last year. Like we had the best kale of our lives last year in our mulched beds. Mm-hmm. And our, I mean, our well went dry. Like we had to end our season oh, right. halfway through because we couldn't water anything, but the kale was awesome, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that is going to be a better solution than landscape fabric on a dry year when, you know, the black fabric kills weeds, but it also heats up the soils if it's mm. going to be hot and dry. So, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by systems that are resilient to both drought and to flooding. Yes. Um, having, having that ability to, to store moisture, but also to like infiltrate what moisture rapidly. So you can get totally. back in the field after a flood. I, yeah, that's... the no-till beds really increase the perkability of this one area that gets really boggy in our mm-hmm. field. Um, mm-hmm. And we did different things too, like in some of those permanent beds, we planted willows, you know, mm-hmm. they're a great, it's like fun, those fun curly willows in a few different colors and Japanese fantail willows and pussy willows. And so they're, they're crops that we cut for our flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also really do a good job of sucking up the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And stabilizing the soil because that particular area can have a flow across it in the melt time. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. find that they compete much with um, with your crops in drought years? You know, probably. I mean, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you yeah. Know, the, the, yeah. It's, it's one of those things like the, the landscape fabric between the beds keeps them contained. So they're not mm-hmm. spreading. And then I cut them pretty much down to the ground every fall. Uh-huh. Um, or every spring when, you know, when the, when the willows, when the pussy willows come out. Um, yep. But they, so, but the roots are probably doing whatever they're doing under there, you know, <laughs> sucking yeah. water up. But I don't know. They're also a windbreak for the, everything that's downstream from there. So that's preventing yeah. water loss. You know, I don't know, you know, it's an ecosystem. We're basically suggesting per our desires that an ecosystem emerge. And part of what we're doing is not just having all the answers and knowing exactly what's gonna happen, but witnessing mm. and seeing what's going on. And so like next to my willows, I had planted some um, echinaceas and things that are 
they and they they don't like how wet it gets there and the willows are helping but i think i'm gonna move them anyway you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i i like that approach of seeing what emerges and and as you say you're an active participant in this system totally. and so if something isn't working you try something else yeah. And yeah. I just, you know, I feel like I've witnessed so many young farmers, especially just get frustrated because they don't, or judgmental or just, you know, down on everybody around them <laughs> because they don't pick the right thing the first time. And like, there's just, there's just no way to do that. Like every, every place I've ever farmed has had its own spirit and its own energy and its own needs, you know, and those mm. needs change from year to year. And so, so much of what we do is just paying attention and stop trying to be right you know like just listen to what the ground is saying and and we have to listen to our bottom lines because otherwise none of us would make it I mean that's all true but like let it all be true you know yeah I have a couple of specific questions about those two systems you described yeah um with the first one where you're putting mulch over the landscape fabric I wasn't sure whether you are planting whether the transplant is going through the landscape fabric or whether you are planting into the mulch. Yeah, so the mulch is just on the pathway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So we have we have a three foot pathway that has landscape fabric on it, stapled down, and then we have like probably four foot bed tops that are open to the soil, and in that there's no landscape fabric that's then covered with four ah. four inches of mulch or so. Okay. Okay. Got it. And you have to pay special attention to the shoulders because that's where, that is where the weeds always come in first is on the shoulders of the bed. So I yeah. like to cap, cap the mulch over the, over top of the landscape fabric about six inches or so, just to make sure three to six inches, just to make sure that there's no weeds trying to come in. Yeah. And those are the beds that are, are pretty much permanent. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Yes, unless they get away from us. Well, yes. Okay, we have permanent to... until they're not. <laughs> we get to start again. <laughs> yeah. And then in the other system, um, how are you prepping that bed or that not a bed? I think prepping that land before you roll out those big sheets of landscape fabric. Are you doing like? Are you putting the landscape fabric over cover crops, or is it pretty much just whatever? is in that field after, after like in the spring? Um, it, we, if we're doing the landscape fabric, we're tilling first. Mm-hmm. So we're usually amending with compost or it's an area that our goats have wintered on. Mm-hmm. And then we till that under and then the landscape fabric goes on top. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk about any of the failures? <laughs> <laughs> sure. What are, what are some systems you tried and you were just like, well, this might work for someone else, but it does not work for me? Well, the the biofilms and like the machines that roll out the films, like mm-hmm. I just I just, you know, rain is so precious. And then to make a system that you just don't even get. I mean, we have a high tunnel, so I get it. We do cover areas for certain mm. things, but like, you know. letting the rains come if they come just feels like a great thing but like necessitating watering by covering your ground with a thin sheet of plastic and then not covering the pathways I never understood that it doesn't make any sense anyway so I didn't like that one most of the methods that we've tried 
have failed because of the unreasonable demands on our human labor. Mm-hmm. So like my absolute favorite thing that we ever did was the craft paper rolls with mulch on top because the paper completely killed the weeds underneath and the mulch held the paper down and then allowed, you know, like the paper did the first initial work of killing those surface weeds. And then the mulch just fed the soil for so long. And like those beds just lasted so well and they were so neat and there was no weed poking through, but like, hand rolling out paper and hoping the wind doesn't come and like, you yeah. know it's just like yeah there's so many amazing things that you can do but once you start having you know four acres that you're trying to handle mm-hmm. it just there's there's a failure there in the like watching your ideas take just too dang long you know yeah <laughs> like yeah um do you find yourself wishing that there was equipment? Like, are you interested in being able to mechanize some of those kinds of systems? I, I have fantasized about some way to lay mulch that doesn't require a wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. Um, we got this cool, like, conveyor belt cranky thing that you can put on the back of our pickup truck to, like, crank out um a load of mulch but like it's it needs tweaking you know and like Mm. I know that there are like like there's I don't remember like cold creek or clearwater creek may they make like small scale machines for laying mulch and compost but of course you know we're not we're not some of those farmers that are also independently wealthy so those (laughs) machines are really expensive and out of reach you know yeah Um, I've definitely seen a few um like repurposed manure spreaders and people people hack these things to make it work Mm -hmm. um and I personally I think that's that's interesting and promising and I I would love to see more farmers just uh experimenting with that stuff for everyone else's benefit hopefully yeah it's all like having the time you know I feel like we have there's just like this this like point in the season where we black out (laughs) around June, you know, like May or June, like, like the throes of planting season when you can like tell things are a little past in the flats and they just need to get in. And like all those good ideas just like turn into this, like, just get it in the ground. Oh God. (laughs) And then like, and that's usually when I revert to the landscape fabric. Cause like every year we make new no-till beds and we maintain our no-till beds. And then we reach this point where we're like, and it's all lost go for the other easy thing okay quick. <laughs> it's just like this this you know it's a good hybrid I think if I can like let myself remember that it's like this every year honey it's okay you know? yeah um yeah and you stop plan and, yeah you have the plan and you have the backup plan and it, and then yeah. the tertiary backup plan, <laughs> all of them. yeah so and it is you know like some some like this year we couldn't lay a bunch of fabric because it was so windy. And so we focused on building no-till beds, but then, mm-hmm. you know, we needed more beds. <laughs> so we just, that's, we got into sandbags this year for mm-hmm. the first time. And I was like, this is amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sandbags. Great. Mm-hmm. Cause the staples work, but until they get a little rusty, they don't stay in the ground. Yeah. 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 We were doing some experiments with uh, landscape fabric held down with staples and definitely went for the longest staples that we could find because yeah. otherwise they just get ripped up totally yeah totally 
So I'm sure that you're always turning over different ideas in your mind, like when when you're not in the like blackout planting phase. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so do you have some uh, some next steps that you're thinking about trying out in the next year or so? I about no-till specifically. Or yeah, yeah. I am really excited about this idea of putting in permanent no-till perennial bed windbreaks mm. in amongst my like the bigger field where we often do the landscape fabric so like mid-size fruit and nut crops as well as like shrubs that would produce flower crops mm-hmm. in yeah. like permanent six foot wide beds that we, we like aim to get them to be like 15 feet tall like think of the size of a lilac hedge but it's not just mm-hmm. lilacs that we're planting it's also roses and baptisias and service berries and aronia berries all these different little things that add a lot of value as crops to our farm but also block the wind so the landscape fabric will stay put it'll help conserve water because they'll be on the contour mm. of this little hillside so there'll be like this little place where just like you know life can erupt you know Mm. um and just have like yeah so these permanent windbreak islands that just like every oh I think we're doing them like every 30 to 40 feet you know Uh so then there's this like 30 to 40 feet of annual bed between them that if we we hope we'll just slowly convert to no-till but until we get there you can till them and then lay landscape fabric for the season for a minimal tillage system, you know? Mm, And then you have the windbreak. So you just, so like our flower crops don't have curly stems because they're not blowing over, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it helps with, you know, late season frosts and it helps with all, all these different things and water conservation and just like, you know, the more habitat you have for wild birds, the less bugs you're going to have eating your crops next door, you know? And so like, it just feels like, like I said at the beginning, diversity is key to life, you know? So Mm. interrupting these annual beds with no-till permanent beds where you, and then also you're creating these soil islands, you know, these like fertility Mm. islands where, all the worms and the beneficial soil critters and everything really can thrive. And I've noticed that fertility really does move out from these central places because in the beginning we could only afford so much compost, you know? Mm. (laughs) So we'd like dotted piles of compost and mulch and just like bedding from our goat shacks onto high places and then would watch as rain and snow would flow the fertility down these high places you know Mm -hmm. because you start with this little this little spark (laughs) this little nugget of a place that allows things to happen and then you know you grow bigger plants one year and then the next year there's more organic matter from those bigger plants and so it really does like once you can get that fertility going and sparking off it she will like the world will come back to life it's the Mm. nature of things you know and so creating little islands where that's happening on a perennial scale in our annual fields feels really exciting to me. Yeah, the idea of distributing that through an annual field just seems like there would be so many benefits to a lot of different ecosystem functions. Yeah. And you have a diversified, like you're, you're already producing such a diversity of products that it seems like adding fruit and 
flowers into the mix that you're already producing would be a good fit given that you totally. have a lot of different market opportunities totally and i really love the combination of perennials with no-till i just mm. think that you know i know a lot of growers especially flower farmers who just put down landscape fabric burn a big hole for their perennials and just let them rock in there. But like the soil compaction is crazy. The plants just, you know, like, but if you're no-tilling those zones and even like bridging the gap to like living ground covers, I mean, it just gets cool, you know, like mm. there's so many cool things. Like I just think that it could be so awesome. Like having a row of like native plums, which are delicious, you know, mm. you can, we can make all kinds of things from them and having like, they make thickets and having, hazelnuts which also make thickets but also like comfrey below them which comfrey is so amazing for the soil and it, it mines um, trace minerals from the subsoil and then it grows up these big little they're almost like shrub size you know mm. yeah <laughs> plant bodies and then they fall over every single year in a wind and then they die and feed the soil and then they do it again they do that like three or four times in one season and it's amazing and that's their natural cycle to, yeah. to grow up give their bodies back to the ground, feed the world around them and then grow up again, you know? And it's like just making these ecosystems that benefit not just people, but also people mm. really yeah. get me excited. Cause that's more of that. It's, it's more of um, that idea of making agriculture less of an act of violence and more of an act of being of a place and not mm. just exerting our will over a place, but being being one of the entities that springs springs out of the ground right where we are you know yeah yeah that's that's beautifully said so what advice would you give to other diversified vegetable farms who are interested in reducing tillage what have you learned that you would want to pass on <clears throat> i I mean, it's go for it. Yes. Like, well, let's do this. Right. Um, I think that there's a million different ways to do it. I think the best advice that I would give is patience, like be willing to fail, be willing to try things and have good ideas and have them not work out. Like give yourself and people who work with you and all of us who are all learning a new way, the chance to fail and be okay with it and to learn and to grow like we have to give ourselves grace we have to stop judging every mistake as a negative thing I mean that's how we learn you know and so like be prepared for things to not work out and be stoked about it because that means that you get to try something new you know like <laughs> I know that we get like trial fatigue you know like we just want something to fucking work you know like <laughs> I get it and like I you know, I learned how to, I mean, I grew up here. We always had a garden when I was a kid, but I learned how to farm in California, right on the coast where we're like, we're talking like fog belts and no rain in the summer, you know, mm. so you couldn't grow a tomato because it was too cold, right? <laughs> like, yeah, you just, it's every place is going to be specific. So we can read the books and we can share at the conferences. And I think that's great. And yes, and like so much of it is going to be listening to your specific spot, figuring out how to work with what is already happening so that you're not pushing the river all the time, you know, see, you know, like if you have an area that like is wetter, like thinking about like what we did with the willows, you know, like permanent crops that will give you a crop and also help 
the situation and be happy there, you know, and like, mm. I don't know, like there's just these elegant solutions occasionally that just show up and you're like, oh yeah, like we realized on those wet years that it was really important for us to like have high gardens and have low gardens mm. depending. And that way, whenever the season showed up, we could watch and then we could make choices about where things were going to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just yeah. think that adaptability is the, is the success, like key, key to succeeding in life, whatever success means, like just being willing to like scrap an idea halfway through and try something completely <laughs> different, you know, like we just, yeah, we just have to have grace. We have to have willing spirits and senses of humor and read all the books for sure. Like get the ideas down. Cause you can over mulch a bed and kill some things pretty easily. So like, that's true, but you know, be, be willing to just try things out and screw it yeah. up and be, we don't need to be perfect. Well said. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, And we covered a a lot of ground. Um, I was wondering if there were any last thoughts. A good mulch joke. A good mulch joke, yes. (laughs) 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 Any final layers that you wanted to lay down? (laughs) Any final thoughts? I, I just think that our work is so important, you know, um I think that you know the small family farm or especially like young farmers getting into things for the first time like there's just there's so much information so many books so many opinions so many this is how you do this and this isn't how you you know kind of ideas out there and I just really would love to see us opening ourselves to have the land talking through our mouths for the first time in generations, you know, like just to have it be the, have the vision, not just be our vision to have the, 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 the whole premise of living and making a life from the ground, not be something that we force onto the world, but something that we court, something that we ask for, you know, something that we, we actively um, give towards and, you know, I think about this with our CSA members because they, they don't have an easy go. These poor people, they chose our CSA. And so they get my endless words about <laughs> what it all means, you know, and it's not just like an easy meal because um, that's an oxymoron that doesn't exist. Mm. Everything, you know, farming is such a beautiful way of life or it's just a cold system of inputs and, you know, inputs and mm. products. Mm. and we're the ones like that's what our gift as people is is that we bring the meaning to that you know we bring the soul to what we do and soil and feeding the soil is everything you know it's where it's where the world becomes this amazing generous place and it just gives I mean it's everything you know like we wouldn't be here without that miraculous like six inches that's spread over you know so much and we waste a lot of it and we hurt a lot of soil and there's just there's so much story there there's so much there's so much to be learned if we can like just kneel and apprentice ourselves to the ground herself you know yeah Liz thank you so much for sharing this time with me I really appreciate it it's been really fun That concludes this episode of The Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out 
all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Sweet. Okay. okay. Thanks, Natalie. Okay. I got to run. Yep. <laughs> okay. See ya. All right. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.